This episode of The Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. I'm Jeff Combs. I'm everywhere on Star Trek, and you keep tuning in to Trek FM. Welcome to The Ready Room, show number 151. Please refrain from using your imagination. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Megan Calcote. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including IDW's Star Trek Planet of the Apes crossover, the chance that Khan might return in the next film, and the results of Star Trek.com's Death Scene poll. Then in the feature, we're joined by Von Glitchka and John Mills to discuss the DS9 episode, If Wishes Were Horses. So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Megan. Welcome to The Ready Room. It's your first time not only on the show, but your first time co-hosting and doing news with me. I am just literally throwing you right into the mix here. That's how I like to do it. I like to jump in the deep end of the pool, get it all out of the way at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) But you're no stranger to podcasting and hosting your own show because you do Educating Geeks along with Alice, who was on our last DS9 Ready Room. Yeah, um, we've been doing that for almost two, well, a year and a half now, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And I'm really excited to join you on the ready room. Uh, I'm yeah. really enjoying listening to everything that Truck FM puts out. So, oh well, thank you. Well, well, I'm glad you're here with me today because I need the help of an educated geek to talk about the first story that we're going to talk about here. You know, San Diego Comic Con just happened, and there's been all kinds of news coming out, and. IDW has done a number of crossovers with Star Trek. They've done X-Men, they've done Doctor Who, Mm -hmm. and now they're doing Planet of the Apes. And I'm not sure if the original idea came out of let's cross Star Trek and Planet of the Apes, or if someone was just sitting around and said, the prime directive, the primate directive, that would make a great story. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, I think the latter is probably more more likely. <laughs> probably. So they're teaming up with Boom Studios, and it will be the first meeting of these two franchises, and it will be the first time that Boom Studios has partnered with another publisher on a series, and it's going to bring together the crew of the original USS Enterprise, along with Taylor, Nova, and the cast from the original Planet of the Apes films. So, Megan, you we talked before the show on the other side of the room. The other side of the room. And I know that you are enjoying the Planet of the Apes franchise. What do you think about this idea? Well, I uh, I do think that's a, it's a strange choice uh, to cross over Star Trek and Planet of the Apes. Um, there's right? Def- that's what I thought, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely the opportunity there with the... Um, prequel reboot reimagining whatever we want to call it coming out um but i i did read 
I only read one issue of it, but I did read the Doctor Who Next Generation crossover, and I actually thought mm-hmm. it was really well done. I wanted to pick up more issues, but sadly, my comic book budget has been very dry lately, so I wasn't able to follow up, but I thought it was well done. Um, so I'm interested to see what happens with this. I think there's, there's good potential there. And I think the TOS crew is probably the best one to do this with. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's definitely the right choice. Well, about it, they say uh, this David Tipton, Scott and David Tipton are writing these, and you know they are just the legendary writers of Star Trek comics. Yeah. So good choice for writing it, and I always enjoy their comics. And David Tipton said, with the Klingons secretly backing a renegade guerrilla general in a coup for control of Ape City, Captain Kirk finds himself in the uncomfortable position of having to help out Doctor Zayas's orangutans. Taylor won't be happy with that. And this reminded, I was thinking of something like a private little war or something where the Klingons are backing the other side Mm -hmm. in a story. And so it did make sense to me. Like you just said, the original crew was perfect for this. I could see this as a TOS episode. If you're going to do a crossover, the Klingons backing the apes is, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and teaming up with Dr. Zayas for the Enterprise crew, that sounds like the right thing to do. Yeah. Actually, I have to point out you're wearing a Duff. I can see Chris on my screen. He's wearing a Duff shirt. There's a fantastic episode of The Simpsons where they do a musical version of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that one. I've missed a lot of Simpsons over the years, you know, being in Japan. So It's an older episode. It's a good episode. You should check it out. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go check that out. So, The press release for this says, Have you ever wondered what it would be like to mind meld with a sentient ape? Megan, have you ever wondered that? Is that something that you sit around? Uh, have you guys done an episode of Educating Geeks where you think about what would it be like if we mind melded with different objects and one of them is a an sentient ape? I'm not really sure if that's something I've spent a lot of time pondering, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm totally honest. Although my dad would be disappointed to hear that. He really wanted me to take primate behavior in college. Uh <laughs> I think my parents were very heavily influenced by the original films. And I, I've seen all of the original films. They're just fun to watch. Um, but yeah, I've never pondered what's really going on in the mind of an ape. <laughs> it also says, or wanted to see a Klingon on horseback brandishing a rifle. Have you ever thought about that? I haven't, but I'm picturing it right now. Yeah, I'm picturing it also. It, that could be pretty cool, actually. <laughs> that one I could see. I could see that. Although I think Klingon horses might be painful to ride because they've probably got (laughs) spikes on their backs like Targs. Yeah, I was just wondering like what kind of mounted animal Klingons, they have to have had something, right? You would think that they would have had something like that in their history. Yeah, I think so too. I can easily picture it. So we'll see what happens in the pages of this comic when it comes out. I actually don't have a release date for this yet. We'll probably get one maybe this coming week. And I'm sure Matthew and I will talk about this on Literary Treks in more depth. Uh, So we'll keep you up to date when it comes out. But I I assume, Megan, you're going to be saving up your money, getting your comic budget back in good shape so you can pick this up? Yeah, I think so. I'll definitely have to check out at least the first couple of issues. But uh, if it's good, I'll definitely continue reading it. I just love the title, The Primate Directive. That was just... That was just ripe for the picking, I think. <laughs> it was. That was that was low-hanging fruit. Right yeah, there. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go on to the next story. 
Last week, we talked about a StarTrek.com poll about engineering sets. So this week, we're going to talk about another one because I really like talking about these. This one is the saddest death scene. StarTrek.com asked fans which character's death was the saddest. They got more than 25,000 votes and the results, the winner isn't surprising at all. Some of the other results are a bit surprising to me. So, Megan, who came out on top in this poll? Well, they said that the top pick was Spock's death. Um, yeah. Which... I mean, is there any contest? Well, for me, the D- Data's death is kind of a, con- a big okay. contest. I mean, because I'll date myself here, but Spock's death happened before I existed on this Earth. So That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah. Like... <laughs> So Spock came in first, 34%. Mm-hmm. Data was second with 21%. For me, there's no contest. There is no other answer but Spock's death and the Wrath of Khan. I mean, yeah. it's still, you know, I had been watching Star Trek for years and years and years before the Wrath of Khan was ever made. And so when when I saw Spock die, even as, as how old was I? I was almost a teenager. Well, that was 1982. So, yeah. so yeah, I was I was 10, 11. It was moving to me then, but now as I get older, it's always been very moving to me. And even now, when I watch The Wrath of Khan, I mean that scene, the acting with Shatner and Nimoy, the relationship between the characters is so moving. It's one reason why I have such a huge, huge, enormous problem with Kirk's death scene in Into Darkness. Oh, I know. And when I see people tweeting about how touching that is to them, I just, I try to see things from multiple angles and respect whatever views fans have on things. But it was such a complete hollow ripoff of The Wrath of Khan. And it was so poorly acted that... And 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 I think Chris Pine does a great job as Captain Kirk. I like Chris Pine's Kirk, and I like I like Quinto Spock. Okay, I, it's not I'm not wild about it, but I think he does a pretty good job overall. But that scene was horrible. And one reason for me that I feel that way is that this is just the death scene in Star Trek that can never be topped. Because yeah. for me, it came along after I knew the characters. Yeah, well, and see, and that's why for me, it's not necessarily necessarily the saddest. If the mm-hmm. question had been, what's the most iconic death, that would have been yeah. the top of my list. Yeah, but for yeah. me, it was always a part of my canon. I have no idea the first time I watched The Wrath of Khan. I There's no telling how old I actually was the first time I watched it. So, I mean, to me, that I always knew it was coming. And I, I, it's just something I always knew about Spock. Yeah. Um, but I am in total agreement with you about how they handled the Into Darkness scene. I was just sitting in yeah. the theater with my arms crossed. I was just angry. I was like, <laughs> I was please too. don't do this. Please don't do this to me. Don't do this right now. And then they did it to me. So <laughs> I was too. I mean, I was sitting there in, I was sitting there in the screening room at Paramount. And I'm with all these people who are, mostly Japanese journalists Mm. and aren't as steeped in Star Trek as I am. And so they're kind of watching what's playing out on the screen. And I was so frustrated. I was like, I want to get my phone out. I want to tweet. I'm like, no, I can't tweet because it's a screening and I'm not allowed to say anything. And plus I can't tweet. I was so frustrated. I'm like, you guys, are you seriously doing this? Really? 
really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's, so I, frustrating. I think that's pretty much the thought process a lot of yeah. Trek fans had when that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go to data, though. Data okay. was second, 20, 21%. This is interesting to me because for me, what is sad about data's death is the scene afterwards on the ship yes. where they where they echo the search for Spock and Picard says absent friends as they do a toast. Yeah. That scene is really touching and really sad. But Data's death itself for me is it's I don't want to say it's like joyous or a celebration or anything, but what it is for me is it's the culmination of Data's journey. He wanted to become human and he sacrificed himself for Picard and for his friends. And so it's like the end of his journey, whereas Spock's death, he sacrificed himself for his friends as well, but it wasn't like the end of a journey for him. It was just his sense of loyalty to his friends. So so you say Data's death is the saddest for you. So well, t- tell me about that. I mean, okay, so for me, I'm a TNG girl. I was raised on TNG. I mean, I was raised by Trek fans, so I've been watching Mm -hmm. Star Trek my whole life. But Data was the guy, he had this perspective on the human race, and I just, I had grown up with him. And I just, I didn't really see it coming, um, and I was really upset with it. I'm not really sure how I feel about how it was handled. But, you know, I've never thought about it the way that you just put it. I've never thought of it as the mm. end of his journey to become human. That kind of makes it mm-hmm. feel, that kind of makes a little bit better for me. But what I don't like, I feel like his death was cheapened because they had the other android. And yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> they should have just just cut that out. Like, it would I think it would have had so much more yeah. weight and I felt like they kind of cheapened they cheapened yeah. the end of his journey. Oh, they yeah. did. They gutted the whole movie. They gutted they, yeah. that I'm glad you said that. They cheapened not just the movie but his journey. Yeah. They gutted 15 years whatever it was yeah. of Data's journey. And we just did we didn't do Nemesis exclusively. We did the TNG film Face Off 2 weeks ago here on the show and I went on my rant about that scene. <laughs> With B4, as I do every time we talk about Nemesis, because I actually, I don't hate Nemesis the way that so many fans do, but I hate that scene. I think when when Riker walks out of Picard's ready room, they should have cut to the E in dry dock being repaired and roll credits, and it would have been a great ending, and so I, I hate that, but... I don't hate Nemesis. I've got mixed feelings about it, but the the way that they handled Data's death is one of the things that gives me mixed feelings about the movie for sure. So for you, it's the saddest death because of the way it was handled more than the actual event that took place on the scimitar. Yeah. 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 If we were to go with the one that made me personally the saddest, it was definitely Jadzia. But I I get that. I have... I have too many feelings about data. <laughs> oh, did you just say Jadzia? Yes. Okay, well, that was number three, 14%. Yeah, it was the third one up there. Tied with Law for 14%. I was really surprised to see Law so high up there. Are you? Because I was actually thinking, before I knew that Law was on the poll, I was thinking, you know, Law's death was sad. It certainly and was. it should be on there. Because I saw that Trip Tucker was on there. And I'm like, wait, trips on here, but lol, that was, and then I saw it was there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a really great episode. It's a really touching episode, and it's certainly really sad. But mm-hmm. compared, when you compare, I was so into Jadzia. Like, I love Jadzia Dax. I loved what, what they were doing with her and Worf. And 
I I did not see that coming at all. And it no, really no hit me did. hard. Yeah. Um, and I, I definitely was bawling like a baby when it happened. So, I mean, it was yeah. for me the saddest. Um, but See, for me, when Jadzia died, my reaction was like, wait a minute, what just happened? Because, yeah. because you don't kill a character like that, usually on Star Trek. It was I shocking mean, the, for sure. The, the only precedent for it was Tasha Yar, who's mm. also in this poll, who has 5%. But of course, Terry Farrell went it out of the contract. And so yeah, I say they went out of the contract. For some reason, they signed the DS9 actors to six years and then she didn't want to do a seventh year and it's whatever. So, so they, they wrote her death scene like that. Over time, I've come to accept it and think that, you know, it's actually kind of cool that they killed off Jadzia in that it fits in with DS9 in saying this is real life. I mean, this is how things are. People die. That's so, a good point. That's a really good point. But it wasn't point. handled well. I mean, I wish they could have given her a more meaningful death. It was just so. It did. It's, it came senseless. really quick. It happened yeah. really quick. And um, my family, while DS9 was airing, um, my family was moving overseas. So that happened. And pretty much right after that, we moved out of the country. And that was kind of, and for a long time, I had no access to Deep Space Nine. So that was kind of like my ending with the show. So it was really tragic for me for a while. Well, you're not alone. That's exactly what happened to me as well. That episode aired and then I moved to Japan Yeah, right we, after that. We moved to Germany right after that. And I didn't get to see any DS9 for like a year. Mm-hmm. And my father recorded what he could and he sent me videotapes, but he didn't get the beginning of season seven. And so the first episode that I saw was Field of Fire the episode where Esri has the rifle and mm-hmm. we're like, what's going on here? So that's really similar because we we were military. So we got the Armed Forces mm-hmm. Network there a year behind and it was very similar. It took me forever mm-hmm. to figure out when it was airing and it was a and I saw Esri and I was just like, what's going on? So it took yeah. me a while. Yeah. So but in the end, you know, the transition to Esri has been great. And if you listen to the orb, you'll find out why Matthew and I feel that Esri's really important to the seventh season and how things play out at the end, especially with Worf and with the Klingons. And they couldn't have done that with Jadzia. So mm-hmm. having the transition there. But but I hated to see her go, absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about Lol a little bit, tied at 14%. Um, that that one to me, it's sad, but yeah, it doesn't, it's not sad in the same way as the others. Yeah. I suppose. Trip Tucker, 8% is next here. That wasn't sad at all. In fact, in my head canon, it never happened because it was so it was so meaningless and it was so out of character for Trip. Trip would never have panicked like that. Mm. And he would have never have done that just so Archer could get there to give his speech. So mm. it was just complete BS. I don't think it ever happened. Well, uh, Chris, like you and I were talking a little bit <laughs> earlier, I'm actually... I've not seen every episode of Enterprise. Okay. So well, I haven't seen I haven't seen it happen yet. Okay. Well, don't worry. It happens in the episode that isn't really an Enterprise episode. Okay, good to know. 
it's the last episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that comes on at the end of Enterprise. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Nothing has been spoiled for you, Megan. Uh, I, this, I, I heard this many uh, a long time ago, yes. so I've been mentally Don't, preparing. Do not worry. You will not miss anything by knowing that he was on this poll. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the last two with 5% each, Tasha Yar and Captain James T. Kirk. Yeah. Now, Tasha Yar, I mean, there was nothing sad. We didn't know her long enough to really be invested in the character, in my personal opinion. Mm. And the way it happened was just so, it was kind of like the Jadzia thing. It was just so meaningless that yeah. you're kind of just left going, wait a minute, did they just kill one of the main characters? Well, and for me, Tasha Yar's death is very similar to uh, Spock's death because it happened when I was really young. Um, okay. So it's always been a part of, like, I knew about that for as long as I knew about Tasha Yar. But that is one of the most iconic episodes of of next gen mm-hmm. for me yeah, I, that's yeah. one of the episodes that i just really really remember i've seems like i've seen it a bunch of times um i rewatched it not too long ago and it's a little sad because for me it's a little sad because i think they lost out on the potential for a cool character that they didn't know what oh, to yeah. do with in the first right, season right. but yeah i mean it's it's not that sad for me well as we talked about last week on here with john and ken from mission log if TNG were written today for sure, but even if it were written in the 2000s or maybe even the 90s, Tasha Yar would have been a character like Starbuck on the newer Battlestar yeah. Galactica. So say we all. Um, or or even at least a character like Kira, like mm-hmm. a strong female character. But in the late 80s, yeah, they didn't know what to do with her. So. Yeah, they were really inconsistent with her characters. And that, yeah. I think that's part of the reason why it's just not as sad because we didn't know her very well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, Star Trek.com said they were really shocked that Kirk came in with 5%. And I don't know if I'm shocked or not shocked about it. I I think his death is kind of, it's it's sad for me. And I remember when it happened in the theater, and I mean, there were fans, there were like men in the theater crying because Captain Kirk had died. And then there are other people who were outraged that they would kill him in that way. Mm-hmm. And I agree that it wasn't a good way for Kirk to go. I, I don't think we needed to see Kirk die on screen in the first place. But it was also sad for me because Kirk was, you know, an iconic figure to me growing up all my life. And just the idea that he's gone now, it's sad, but... So it's certainly not near the top of the poll for me. I probably have Spock and Data and Law at the top for me, top three. I don't know if I'd have Kirk at the very bottom, though. How do you feel about it? I don't know. I, I would definitely rank him above Tasha. Um, mm-hmm. And not having the connection with Trip, I definitely have to put him above Trip. But um, yeah, I don't know. For I saw the movie in the theater. Um, I, d- I don't. I don't know. There's something about to me. It, maybe it's my head cannon. It, it didn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. it's kind of like your trip, Ducker. Uh, but I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it wasn't sad to me. It's not sad to me now. I'm watch. I can watch the original series anytime and see the the Kirk that I love. I don't know what it is. It, just, it wasn't that sad for me. I don't. I wish I knew why. It has to have been something with how it was done in in the film. I'm sure it's how it was handled. Yeah, I think. yeah, more than anything. Yeah. All right. So those are the results. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go over to StarTrek.com and, and see the actual poll and, uh, and vote in the next poll. 
because we may talk about it here on the show because it's fun, fun to hear what everyone thinks about this. Okay, Megan, we have one more story today, and I understand this is one that you've got some strong feelings about. This came out of San Diego Comic-Con as well. Also, an interview that Zachary Quinto did, or at least maybe a, a little soundbite he did with MTV. The idea that Khan might come back in the next Star Trek film, which I call Star Trek 2016, and I think the first comment I saw at the end of this article on trekmovie.com was, please do not let this happen. <laughs> um, I, do, do you, does any part of you at all want to see Khan in the next movie? No, not, I didn't, no part of me wanted to see Khan in the last movie. Like no <laughs> right. part of me wanted to see that. So, I mean, I don't know. It would give them the opportunity. So my disappointment in the second movie was that I really wanted them to do an original story. I thought the first one was fun. It was an original story. And so I was looking forward to more of that in the second one. And they just I, uh, they just didn't do it. So it gave them the opportunity to do something original with Khan. Um, I think it's really unlikely. I, I don't think they'll do it. And I don't, don't want to so. see it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they'll do it either. I, I really, really don't think they'll do it. I This came up and Cumberbatch said, maybe Khan could come back. He is in freezer. We have all defrosted chicken in our day. Set the toaster to defrost and he will come out all bad and angry again. I don't know. It depends on what direction they are going to take. There is definitely room for him to come back in some shape or form. I think that this soundbite from Cumberbatch has been taken from a longer conversation where a reporter was trying to bait him and like, are you going to be in the next movie? Because he also mentioned that he had talked to JJ about maybe being in the next Star Wars movie as well, but they decided that it didn't really make sense and it wouldn't work out. Yeah, I uh, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's all it is. It's, it's, like, um, it's like a news conference where people are trying to bait a politician or a football coach into revealing some kind of information that they can then write a story around. Yeah, it's it's just a way to get people riled up on the internet. I, I really yeah. do think it's highly unlikely. I think he's right that the possibility is certainly there, but I really it's think it's really unlikely for the yeah. for them to do this in this third movie. The only thing that I could say is that if they did it and they brought him back, then they really would have to do something original involving the Khan character. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the, I mean, the Wrath of Khan has already happened. So Yeah, they absolutely would. I think is the other thing that was kind of disappointing was that I've, I finally have seen, I had never seen the first episode, the episode of TOS where oh, Space Khan Seed, is first. Really? In, okay. Yeah, I finally yeah. have seen Space Seed and that's such a great intro to the story and they cheapened the Khan story by not giving us that and just making him angry from the get-go. Um so, yeah, I just well, I just don't think they're going to do it. I think th- they wrote a story in which John Harrison was just John Harrison. And then they decided that, you know, this guy could be Khan. And then they made him Khan. Because for me, I don't want to talk too much about this because I rant on it all the time on here. But <laughs> me too. We, we were just talking about earlier, like our reactions in the theater and all is that the first half of Into Darkness I thought was really interesting. And they really had me and I was really following it. I'm like, this is actually a pretty good movie. And then they lost me. So yeah, I think I'm, that's what happened is they decided, you know, he could be Khan, 
let's make him kind. So yeah, I'm kind of the same. I was really hope I really wanted it to be like some kind of mirror universe thing. Um, ah, okay. I thought that could have been cool, but yeah, I'm, I could talk for two hours about that. So <laughs> I wanted him to be to be Don Harriman, and then uh, there was <laughs> going to be a, a tie-in. But anyway, all right. Well, th- the last part of this is that Quinto said to MTV on the same topic. Any chance to work with Benedict? But I don't know if it is now or later. I don't know what they have in store for Ben. I would love to have him back. Now, this was spun as Quinto agreeing that there's the possibility that Khan could be back in the next movie, whereas I think it's actually just Quinto saying, I love working with the guy. I hope we can do a movie together in the future. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, (laughs) actors get along and they want to work together again. Like, sure, there's a possibility, but I I think think they're just buds from the set. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So Trek Movie has a poll in their article and they asked, want Khan to return for 2016 Star Trek movie? And the current results are 20% yes, which I find a shocking result, 68% no, which I thought would be a lot higher, and 12% maybe. So that means 32% are either yes or on the fence about this, which really surprises me. I thought it would be like a 95% no on that. Well, I think there are are a lot of younger fans out there that don't have as much history with the franchise maybe and yeah. at least those 12 per- I'll give those 12% of people a little bit of a break but <laughs> I w- I'm well, kind of surprised with the 20% yes from following Twitter I think those 12% are all young women who are in love with Benedict Cumberbatch and they don't care if he plays Khan or if he plays the captain's chair in the next movie <laughs> they just want him on the screen oh I I'm totally in that camp I love him I think he's a fantastic actor but I mean I'm not a cumber I don't call myself a cumber cookie or anything but I think he's a fantastic actor uh, and I'd love to see him do just about anything but yeah please don't please don't be Khan yeah. again I like him as well, but I mostly just know him from Sherlock, yeah. not from much of anything else. And and I really like his portrayal of Sherlock, although I think Martin Freeman steals the show as Watson in there, though. I think they steal scenes from one another. I've seen him Maybe. in some other stuff. They're he both did a, really good. They so. are. They're both fantastic. Yeah. And I've seen him in some non-sci-fi stuff, and he's got he's a good actor. So I'd love to see him in anything, just not this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well... We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go to Trek Movie and check out the article and vote in the poll. I assume they'll keep the poll open until it hits 95. But <laughs> I, I'm going to go vote today. I'll do that as soon as we're done recording. All right. All right. Well, that's all we have in news. Before we jump into the feature, where we're going to be joined by John Mills and Von Glitchka to talk about the DS9 episode, If Wishes Were Horses, we need to tell you about our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is one of my favorite sources, Megan. I've been... This is scary. Brace yourself. I've been an Audible customer for 14 years. That's amazing. (laughs) I I have. (laughs) I love Audible. I have hundreds and hundreds of books. They kept me sane. I used to have a four and a half hour round trip daily commute to work in Tokyo. How do you even deal with that? I hate commuting. I was young back then (laughs) and I had way more energy than I have now. And they kept me sane, though, with audiobooks. And so I love Audible. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and signing up for the trial. And we like to recommend a book to you each week to pick up. And as this is a Star Trek show, we like to give you something Star Trek to pick up. 
And Megan, I know that you're a fan of Lawaxana Troy, and so I pulled out an older Peter David book to recommend today called Cuin Law. Now, I also understand that you've never read this book. No, I haven't. Um, I've, I know I've seen it on the shelves in places, and I know I've picked it up and then just tried to hold in my geek and just put it back, but um, I'm going to have to check this out for sure. <laughs> It's been a long time for me. I, I did read this back in the day, and I haven't read it in a long time. It's from the TNG numbered novel series, in fact. It's number 18. <laughs> that gives you some perspective on on where it is in the, the line of, of Star Trek novels, the long line of Star Trek novels. Here's the synopsis. I'm going to tell you about it. Tell me what you think, Megan. All right. The USS Enterprise is chosen as the marriage site for a wedding that will unite two powerful rival families— of the spacefaring merchant race, the Tizarin. But Captain Picard's happiness is soon cut short by the arrival of the Federation delegate from Beta Zed, Loaxana Troy, the mother of the ship's counselor, Deanna Troy. Despite Loaxana's nagging presence, the festivities proceed smoothly until the arrival of the notorious and all-powerful being, Q, who has come to examine and challenge the human concept of love. Suddenly, the celebration is in turmoil. The Tizarin families are on the brink of war, and Lawaxana is determined to teach Q a lesson in love that he will never forget. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing because this is a book with both Q and Loxana. So right. stuff is going to get totally junked up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, apparently, I'm just saying, I think Loaxana's lessons in love, they didn't stick too well with Q because when he tried to woo Janeway, he wasn't very good at it. That's true. That's very true. And he was getting lessons from the master here. Come on. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to check this out for sure. I've started biking to work, so I need stuff to listen to on my commute. Well, it's perfect then. This will be perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, pick it up. So, Megan, you can get it, and everyone listening, you can get this book absolutely free just for trying Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up for the trial, I should point out it's for new customers, unfortunately. I wish we could do it for existing customers, but there are people like me who have been using them for 14 years, and so they're, they're trying to get new customers. But when you try out Audible, it really does help us keep the ready room coming to you every week. So go try them out. Again, audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And we really thank Audible for their support of the network and the show. Aliens appearing on board a starship or space station is nothing new to Star Trek, but normally you expect to see a menace like Klingons or the Borg or a woman in go-go boots and a bling belt, none of whom can spin straw into gold. But as Terry J. Erdman said in the DS9 Companion, if wishes were horses could have been, just another mysterious aliens play head games with the Star Trek crew story. Instead, it morphed into a delightfully whimsical episode. Or did it? 
Today, we're going to find out how we feel about Rumpelstiltskin's little visit to the station. And to help us do that, we're joined once again by Von Glitschka. Hello, Von. How are you doing? Good. Welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be here. And also joining us is Ready Room DS9 mainstay, John Mills. Hey, John, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Always happy to be here. You have become a mainstay here, I think, for our <laughs> DS9 episodes. And I'm I'm happy about that. I always have so much fun. It's great. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's jump into this. And before we do, for those who haven't seen this episode, for those who have skipped over it during each of their DS9 rewatches, this is what happens. Miles O'Brien is reading a bedtime story to Molly, and it's Rumpelstiltskin, to be precise. And afterwards, the character himself appears in the flesh. Joining him are legendary baseball player Buck Bokai, who was first mentioned, though not by name, in the TNG episode The Big Goodbye, and an overly amorous Jadzia Dax. As the story goes on, more and more bizarre things happen aboard the station, such as a snowstorm on the promenade, and the first and only guest appearance on Star Trek by an emu. (laughs) And a spatial rift threatens to swallow the station. Eventually, the crew realizes that they are creating all these problems themselves with their imaginations, and the alien trio come clean. Buck blows off Cisco's suggestion that they learn more about each other, but he does at least leave behind the baseball that becomes a bit of a character itself over the course of the series. So that is If Wishes Were Horses. John, what do you think about this episode? What are your initial impressions? Most people... I think laugh about this one because it's Rumpelstiltskin, but it's always had a certain charm for me. It does have a charm. And I think that um, the the word you mentioned uh, earlier from the companion, whimsical, mm-hmm. I think it's important, um, especially in the first season of a show, any show, to have a whimsical episode, especially something where you're going to have characters that you're going to have to get to know over a long period of time it makes you care more about them to have an episode where you don't have to really care that much about what's happening. Is it one of the mainstays? Is it an episode that I would be like, Oh, you got to what? No, it's, <laughs> it's not making my top 10, but if you're a fan of the show, it's, it's fun. It, you know, it's, it's a show that that's like, you know what? We're all friends here. Let's just have a good time. Eh, that, that has its charms. You might tell people, oh, you've got to see this one, but meaning Rumpelstiltskin actually appeared in Star Trek. You've got to see this. Hey, and it's a Twin (laughs) Peaks tie-in because the actor who played Rumpelstiltskin, so Ah. that's a double geek win right there. Excellent, excellent. Vine, how about you? Uh, This is one of those episodes that it's almost like when it's time for dinner and I ask my wife, what what are we having for dinner tonight? And she says, well, we're just having leftovers. And... (laughs) When a show like this comes up, I, I kind of think that way, like, is this like writers just, you know, you think back to the old uh, uh, original series and they would reuse like cowboy sets or sets from mafia movies. And it was because they didn't have a huge budget. And sometimes I, I almost think this kind of harkens back to it, but in a fun way, it brings a lot of levity to the storyline. And at first I'm like, oh, I don't want to have leftovers tonight, but. As I start watching it, the more I watch it, it I kind of get endeared to what they're they're covering, and it it touches on all the things that um, I'm really 
either passionate about when it comes to Star Trek or in my own life. So I'm always kind of exercising my uh, creative imagination. So that's a fun storyline to play off of. And I'm a huge baseball fan. So um, the only downer for, for this particular episode, and I'll probably touch on this more when we talk about the baseball aspect of it, is that uh, baseball kind of dies off in the future. That's the only mm-hmm. sad part about it for me, really. But I, I really like this show. It's it's not my top 10, but the more I watch it, the more it kind of uh, finds a special place in my heart for Star Trek. Is it in your top 10 fine episodes of Star Trek? Oh, yeah, definitely. Great. How about you, Megan? Uh, well, I think the last time I watched this episode was actually when it aired. So it's been a really long time. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of like Vaughn. I was like, I don't know if I really want to watch this one, guys. But then after I turned it on and got into it, I was like, this one's a lot better than I remembered it being. Some of the moments between, uh, I really enjoyed the moments between Odo and Quark. And then yeah. um, <laughs> the Dream Dad Zio is pretty entertaining as well. So I I kind of agree with what you said earlier, Chris, about... It seemed like they were kind of struggling in the script, but ultimately I thought it was an enjoyable episode. Well, they, they had this idea that there would be aliens whose approach to first contact was different than the Federation because the Federation is very much head-on, I've heard it described as head-on friendly confrontation. <laughs> it's like, here we are, you should be friends with us, you know, because we're big and we're cool and we're the Federation and hey, talk to us, let's have a, let's have a beer and get to know each other like Cisco is with Buck at the end of the episode, right? But these are going to be aliens who are really shy and they want to kind of fill you out before they reveal themselves. So that was the idea for the episode. And then it took on a life of its own and they, they made some changes to it. Like it was going to be some of the original ideas were to have a character from Alice in Wonderland. I think the original script had that which makes me feel more like shore leave because this mm-hmm. episode reminds me a little bit of shore leave. Yeah, me too, well. for sure. This episode reminds me more of where no one has gone before from the next generation, just in that there are like actually things manifesting themselves on the ship because of people's imaginations. But, but it does feel like shore leave as well. And, and oh, they were going to have a leprechaun as well. And they decided that maybe that was a little bit, stereotypical if Miles <laughs> O'Brien is talking to a leprechaun and Colmini felt the same way and so they replaced the leprechaun with Rumpelstiltskin which is still kind of similar I guess but he's at least well, not a leprechaun. <laughs> by that point I, I believe that the leprechaun horror franchise had been established so then you have to oh, yeah. determine yeah, yeah. which leprechaun you know is right. it an evil leprechaun or is it you know your your typical friendly leprechaun that, that's and kind of key. Be very scary for Molly in that case too. Right? I don't know if Chief O'Brien seems like a horror movie fan. Yeah, probably that's not. a good point. I yeah. don't think Keiko will let him watch them. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> exactly. You know, there, there's actually an interesting uh, tie-in as I was rewatching it, where um, the they explain the mechanics of their you know manifestation through imagination. Yeah, and everything only has power because your imagination gives it power. And as uh, most people might know who have ever encountered me, I am on sort of uh, an unholy quest to bring respectability to Star Trek Five. And <laughs> so, 
there's a possibility here where you can retcon it to say okay. that the creature they encountered at the center of the galaxy was one of these creatures gone bad. And that's why the Great oh. Barrier wasn't actually there. It was all a manifestation of your imagination. That makes sense. I like that. Yeah. Well, now, the, I, I have an idea also. It just came to me right now. After this happened on the station, wouldn't you think that Starfleet engineers would start working on some sort of imagination-based propulsion system where you just imagine that the ship is going really fast and therefore it is, and you don't need dilithium crystals anymore. You don't have to get in conflicts because this planet has resources that you need. All you need is your imagination. That doesn't sound like a bad idea at all. I like it. (laughs) There's a big problem with this, though. If propulsion was based on imagination... First contact would have never happened because the Vulcans would have never gotten out of their solar system. <laughs> See, I, I actually took issue with that. I actually took issue with them saying that the Vulcans don't have great imaginations because mathematics requires a great deal of yeah. mental gymnastics at times and a lot of imagination. And I, I don't think it's fair to classify the Vulcans as non-imaginative within the context of the episode i i think that they they would be some of the most imaginative people just more controlled about it controlled um, yeah you know i i would think it would be horrifying to you know for the for them to have done first contact with the klingons would have been absolutely <laughs> horrifying probably <laughs> you know they would have been like oh no no i done. don't know you you I'm don't want to see some there. klingons dancing to ubi doobie <laughs> <laughs> No. All right. Well, yeah. so the premise here, of course, is letting our imaginations run wild. This has my one of my favorite lines in Star Trek when Kira says, yellow alert against our own imaginations. <laughs> yeah. But the, the premise itself, I mean, it's something that we've seen a number of times in Star Trek. We already talked about uh, shore leave a little bit. And tying into this is the idea that there are these explorers who come to the station, which I just talked about a moment ago, who want to fill out the crew and find out about you. And so they, but they don't want to show themselves. So they take other forms. And we see that either in this case where they, they're not actually possessing anyone, right? They're just imitating other characters that are appearing. Or sometimes we see people being possessed, like on Enterprise in Observer Effect, where the Organians come on the ship and they actually take over people's bodies. So we see these two types of things, and, and we've seen it many times throughout Star Trek. Did, did this plot device for you guys feel, did it work in this episode, or did it just feel like a rehash for you? Uh, for me, it worked. I, you know, I, I thought it was, uh, you know, it, it's a worthwhile plot device, so I don't mind if it's being reused. In, in a way, you could almost say that it, demonstrates how hard it is to you know learn from your mistakes or past experiences because they keep encountering things like this and they keep getting tripped up by it nobody ever says hey wait a minute is it possible if so maybe that you know encountering that sort of uh entity reveals their own lack of imagination at problem solving you know i mean maybe that's a stretch i don't know but you know a good plot device is worth reusing especially when you've got a tv franchise that spans decades yeah, I'm kind of with you on that one, John. Um, I thought it worked well. Um, it's definitely a rehash, but I thought it worked really well. 
Um, I did find it a little jarring. Like there's that one very brief scene where the three are having a conversation and it took me out of the episode just a little bit, but I still thought it was done well. I, I kind of agree with what everybody said. I, I liked it because at first I couldn't, until they got to the scene where the aliens were talking with one another, I I didn't pick up on that would be the way they, they spin it. So I thought it was going to be like a uh, like there's a leak in some chemical and they're all hallucinating and they didn't realize mm. it or something. But um, So I was a, a little surprised. Although when it first started, like I said, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch this and and then over the years, I've watched it more than a few times, and I like it. So I, I'm okay with it. As it, even though it doesn't really pertain to the long story arc, it's still right. a, a fun spot to hit along the way. So that's a good thing. Well, at this point in Deep Space Nine, there is not very much that ties into the long story arc. And in fact, yeah. when I'm watching, when I'm doing rewatches of DS Nine. I I have a li- I keep a list of possible topics for the orb for every episode and I I will jot them down and as you go through the first season almost every one of them the very first thing is TNG like stories on Deep Space Nine <laughs> so yeah. we're gonna like just because it does like this episode could completely be done on the next generation all the way down to the fact that you could have Miles O'Brien reading a story to Molly on the Enterprise mm-hmm. D. And this story could work perfectly fine on that ship with that crew. Uh, I mean, maybe you wouldn't have Buck Bokai. Like, maybe you'd have, like, some really famous Olympic gold medalist in fencing that Picard (laughs) would get really excited about. And he would recognize him from his collection of fencing trading cards that he keeps in his ready room. (laughs) I don't know. But... But it would work on TNG really well. Now, the original pitch for this story, though, was that these characters were going to be holograms from the Hollow Suites, and the story revolved around the Hollow Suite. Well, I shouldn't say that. The characters themselves weren't going to be holographic characters, but the crew was going to think that they were holograms. And then they would find out that, no, these are actually these aliens, and this is how they're trying to uh, check us out and communicate with us. But they were, uh, TNG was developing Ship in a Bottle at the same time with Moriarty. And they didn't want to have that overlap quite so much that very, very similar stories. And so they really got rid of the hollow suite parts. Although you do have Quark talking about expanding his operations. And then you have the fact that Buck Bokai was created as a hologram by Cisco for him and mm-hmm. Jake too see on the on in the hollow suite so there's a, a little bit of a remnant of that what if what if they had played up the hollow suite angle more would you like the story as much no i i wouldn't have i mean that was actually one of the things i liked about it was that kind of all three of the all three of the characters came from different places i think if it had focused too much on the hollow suite it kind of it would have felt too much like a re a repeat of what we've seen on tng already yeah yeah, Hollow Sweet gone wild. That's <laughs> I, I was never really nuts about that plot device. I mean, it, it obviously it worked with uh, Moriarty, but it was never one that lit me on fire on Next Generation. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it you know it's rehashing what I consider a good idea versus rehashing what I consider a tired idea. And sure, it, mm. you know it, it's personal opinion, but yeah, a hologram Hollow Sweet thing would have been eh. 
Well, John, I understand that Hollow Sweet Gone Wild is almost always number two, number two bestseller in Quartz right after Vulcan Love Slave. <laughs> but if Vulcans don't have any imaginations, Vulcan Love Slave is probably a very boring program. <laughs> it could be, although if it was written in the 22nd century by some of those Vulcans that uh, T'Pol hooked up with, it could be quite exciting. It's probably got a nice jazz soundtrack to it. And all. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> they did. They did later on in Deep Space Nine. They did rely quite a bit on the whole Hollow Suite with Vic and his club. Yeah, and- yeah. But it felt different, though. Like on TNG and Voyager, the Hollow Deck was a place where the crew would go to immerse themselves in some other story. You know, and so the writers can tell a story because. They're in space, in the middle of space, and, and, and we need we want to tell a Sherlock Holmes story, so we'll just use the, the holodeck. But with Vix, it became more of like a place for the characters to go to sort of explore how events around them were affecting them, more so than, than a leisure activity. It was more like a counseling session almost for them. Yeah. So it was used a bit differently there. Well, what about the power of imagination? The Luckily, I'm not anymore. But when I was younger, I was definitely a hypochondriac. You know, it's like, I think I've got this disorder. I've got this disorder. And you really do feel, I mean, it seems real, right? Like if you think there's something wrong with you, it can reach the point where you have a physical manifestation of symptoms of that disorder. Even though if you go to the doctor, they'll say there's nothing wrong with you. And I, I found it interesting that this episode really focuses on that idea that the the world, like we all live in this world together and we all see the same things going on, but our reactions to it and what we take away from it differs. And it depends a lot on on our view of it and how we think about it over and over and over to the point where that viewpoint that we have becomes so real that, you know, our perception of this event or this uh, thing about the world is different from someone else. And this is taking it to the extreme here to where uh, you actually see, you know, a snowstorm on the promenade or a cork in the brig or whatever it is that you imagine would be real. What was your take on that aspect of the story? How about you, Yvonne? Well, first off, I, I, I have a slight question, and that is, who was the one responsible for the snow? Was that Odo's imagination? I never figured that out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could have been Molly. Maybe like most kids, she wanted to play in the snow, and so she was thinking about it, and maybe she was wandering through the promenade at the time. Who knows? I'm more concerned about who kept thinking up those emus. What is up with that? <laughs> the emus were awesome. because I don't know who was thinking them up, but I love when he's chasing the two emus and they disappear. And then Quark's looking for those two girls. And they come right around the corner. And the emus yeah. disappear. Yeah. And then the girls come back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we should... Uh, point out for those fans who are listening going they're not emus i know they are gunji jackdaws which are space emus 
and they actually were <laughs> playing. The emo thing is really, it's an interesting story because apparently, and I didn't really know this till I started reading about it, emus are really stubborn animals and they don't want to do anything. And the only way they could get those emus to move on the set was to have someone pushing them because they won't, you, you can't tell an emu to walk across the the right. set or, you know, show them a snack like you would a dog or something. So one of the Bajoran monks is actually an emu trainer dressed as a Bajoran monk to guide them around on the set so they could get them to do what they wanted them to do. Well, I, you know, you have to, I mean, you know, the, the, with the emus, I, that's, that is always a situation where, you know, they invented the name, you know, um, I, I can't Don't even remember it. <laughs> yeah, even though you said it like two seconds ago. Um, I never know whether to give the writers credit for naming something I know what it is and giving it a different name or, you know, like lambasting them for saying, look, just just call it an emu. All right. We all know what it is. Call like, it you a didn't Bajoran spray emu. paint it or anything. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you don't have to spray paint the emus. <laughs> right. It's not like the blue horses of Nimbus 3, you know. <laughs> or the green goats in Aaron of Mercy. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the the yeah. Nimbus 3 thing cracks me up, too, because they didn't have enough money to do the rock creatures at the end of the film. But yeah. they spent money painting horses that you can't really tell were painted in the first place on screen. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> so many decisions. But, you know, yeah, I, I, the the emus are definitely... I don't know. Like they almost seemed, yeah, you have that nice little moment where they, they disappear, but it seems like almost like they were really stretching for something to have on the promenade. What would you have put in there instead? But, uh, you know, I'm a terrible fan because I can't remember the name, but whatever the Klingon dog is that Krug had. A Targ. Yeah. Yeah. A Targ. Yeah. Yeah. Put a couple of those out there, you know, <laughs> puppets or something. I don't know. Make them marionettes or just one of them and just like well, put a costume on a dog. I always imagine that somewhere on the promenade there's a zoo and that these animals hmm. escaped. They thought these animals escaped from the zoo. That's actually a really good theory and completely shoots down my complaint. So I will concede. <laughs> but I don't know the if point. there's actually a zoo there or not. So. Excellent headcanon, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, my headcanon is all over the place. <laughs> 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 also an interesting thing that Renee Abergenois talked about was that in the movie Brewster McLeod he played a character that turned into a bird over the course of the film so they had him improvise in this episode to try to get the emus to react to him and that's why he's doing his head he's kind of examining the emu he's moving his head around to get the emu oh. to react to him oh that's interesting and it it turned out that it, it, to me, it works well for Odo's character. You know, Odo, he's a security chief and he's really like looking over this bird. Like, I wonder if this guy's trading arms or something. What's going on with him? Well, also the idea of Odo being a mimic, mm-hmm. you know, like mm, trying exactly. to find what type of movement, you mm. know, that's how he would physically relate to a situation before he would even mentally relate to a situation. He would mm-hmm. size up the physical aspects of everything. That's a great point. That's interesting. Yeah. You're, um, one thing you 
uh, a point you're asking earlier is how our beliefs kind of shape the world around us. And that made me think a lot, especially with watching this episode, because there's a lot of parallels you can draw there from um, you could go religious or political. And um, as you were discussing uh, hypochondriac, it can get even to the point where you worry about something so much you have things manifest and right. uh, that made me remember my daughter, my youngest daughter, she was born with a heart defect. And so she had open heart surgery when she was one. And I didn't think I was freaking out about it. I thought I was mm-hmm. pretty reserved about it and not really worrying about it, but that didn't stop me from having like two panic attacks. <laughs> oh was, yeah, definitely. And yeah. Um, when the doctor explained it to me, it made me realize, wow, you know, it is pretty amazing what can happen when your your mind uh, focuses on certain things and that can go good and bad obviously and you know i i've met a lot of people who they hold to certain beliefs and because of it you know they make certain decisions that in my opinion are just bad decisions but um yeah so i think there's a lot of parallels in regards to you know how our beliefs shape the world and Mm -hmm you know, people we interact with. I think that that's what causes a lot of joy and a lot of hardship. Well, it's almost like reality is some sort of of substance that has to be molded, right? It's not set. And you hear stories about people who exhibit super strength, you know, in a time of danger. Like if your child is in danger, you could lift something that's you normally could never lift. And I think that is sort of that our minds put limitations on us in many cases and and maybe we are capable of other things and that's where I guess the power of belief or the power of faith actually does have a real effect on the world. I I have a question. Did they ever like name the aliens? Did the aliens have a title like what type of aliens? Not that I'm aware of. It would have been interesting no. if they had revisited these aliens at some point down the road so that we knew who they were. Yeah, I thought but, they were a really interesting race. I wanted to know yeah. more about them. Just like Cisco, I was like, well, tell me about you. Uh-huh, well, yeah. And there's even there's even that uh, the guy who played Bokai, like he's walking out at the end. He's like, yeah, you know, we'll see you in a year or so. Yeah, right, yeah. And it's like, why wouldn't they? They obviously had the idea to bring them back. But they maybe, although maybe it was just part of the sports metaphor, you know, like, we'll see you next season. Okay, well, I mean, Could that's be. a fair point. Yeah, that's a fair point. But they may have thought about bringing them back. Um, I haven't actually heard that that was the case, but it depends on what happened with the show. You know, at this point, the show is just basically TNG, but it's set on a space station. And there are, you know, emissaries very different. And then when you get to duet things really start to change towards the end and in the hands of the prophets. But for most of the middle of the season, first season of DS9, it's TNG. They've got different uniforms and they're on a space station. You have different characters. In season two, the show started to really find its own voice. And so I think at that point, they didn't think about going back to these aliens. But if it had continued to be like this all the way through, then this does seem like a story that they might have picked up on again and they would have encountered them once again. No, that's a, I, I just wonder if, I mean, has anybody done a, uh, it, it might be neat to do, uh, you know, like a, a novel 
you know, have have a story where you find out that there was some instance during the Dominion War where they thought something was happening and it was really this race came back and they were like, we were just curious to see, you mm-hmm. know, what you're like in a, you know, we saw you having this war and we were curious to see, you know, where your minds are during this situation. You find out that you find out who the fatalist is and who the pragmatist is. And at that point in the war, and maybe it's a, you know, it's a learning session that brings the characters to, you know, the point that we know them at in the, in the mm-hmm. show or something. What if they were a rival race to the Q? That would be interesting. Mm. I like that idea. <laughs> I like that idea a lot. Yeah. Maybe they should have used this race uh, to retcon um, Tremaine into instead oh, okay. of... So, well, that would make more sense, right? Yeah, yeah. it yeah, would have. Because Tremaine was much more limited than a Q was. Right. Because these guys, just like Tremaine, were watching Earth through their telescope and they were into the fairy right. tales and they were into everything, yeah. Yeah, I like that. So they, you could call them, just call them P. They'd just be a little <laughs> The P. <laughs> the P. <laughs> I don't know about that, Vine. I can just hear them like, red alert, we have P on the bridge. It doesn't sound yeah, very that's... appealing. I don't know. Maybe for the animated series it would have worked. I don't know. I don't know. Archer, you know. It would have worked if Porthos had gotten on the bridge. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, Porthos, I mean, he got he got his dad in trouble on that planet for for That's watering right. a tree. So, <laughs> yep. And uh, when that happens, you know, the only way, the only thing you can do is you've, you've got to have dreadlocks and you've got to cut logs. That's how you get out of it. So. <laughs> Shirtless, apparently, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about some of the other characters. We talked a little bit about Odo and Quark already. I This is just the classic early DS9 opening for me. It's always Quark and Odo in the bar with Odo talking about how crazy humanoids are. And Quark is cooking up a plan. And, you know, Armin Shimmerman and Rene Abergenoy, they had worked together on stage in the past. They were friends. They knew each other. So their dynamic together just from the very beginning, was so fantastic. And this episode stands out to me as well. I mean, actually, when I when I think of that opening scene, always in the bar and them together, this is actually the, the episode I think of most. Also, when I tell people that early on, you have Spock, you have Data, and on DS9, early on, Odo was kind of that character who was the person who was going to comment on humans, but in this case, just humanoids because he's a shapeshifter. What do you think about Quark and Odo here in this story? I agree with you. It's a great exchange. Uh, I even thought that the way that it was shot felt more natural than a lot of the openings that they had, especially Mm -hmm. in the first season. And they are very relaxed. It almost has the flow of it doesn't feel scripted. It feels almost improv. That's what I was thinking, too. It did feel I was going to ask if anyone knew if that was fully scripted or if they were allowed to improv that at all. Yeah, it, it definitely felt very loose and fun. It felt like two actors having a good time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the the commentary also, uh, in retrospect, when Quark is talking about branching out into family entertainment, the first thing I thought of was, I was like, well, Disney did buy Marvel and they bought all, you know, like, <laughs> almost like, almost as if Disney goes out and buys Las Vegas next. 
Oh my gosh, that's exactly what I wrote down. (laughs) Yeah, you've got the ultimate entertainment empire that is absolutely unstoppable from this point forward. Wow. Yeah, it's that that scene I thought of Las Vegas too, because as soon as he mentions family, I mean, Uh Las Vegas had that period about a decade where they Mm -hmm. they geared it towards family. But um, the way it started off just always makes me chuckle. I just... I like their interaction. Anytime those two are kind of uh, yeah. throwing barbs at one another, it's a good thing. It's one of my favorite combos of actors in Star Trek because it just really always feels like Armin and Renee, not Cork and Odo when they're talking. And especially if you see them in other things, it's just... And Armin Shimmerman does such... Well, well, both of them really because the makeup for both of them is really hard to act through. And they both just do such a great job of that. You know, I was watch. We were watching uh, Frasier the other night, and there was an episode where Renee is playing one of Frasier's old professors from school. And when you're watching him, it's like it's not like you're watching Odo, but it's more like I think about Odo and I realize just how he played through that makeup. And felt mm-hmm. like a real person, despite the fact that he's been made to to look featureless, and mm-hmm. and how like thick and, and plasticky that is. Well, I, he definitely, um, as an actor, he definitely had uh, command of his voice. I think yeah. that um, I think that Armin Shimmerman had more eye expression possible in that makeup, mm-hmm. so he was able to use more, you know, eyes more than. Uh, than he was but it's really his voice he's so good at using it as you know an actor's tool and it it's so it's so old school because there are so many actors now that have to rely on the close-up and Mm -hmm. getting just the right lighting in the shot and and the facial expressions it I think it speaks very much to his stage background Mm -hmm. in that you're not going to basically he's able to play to the back of the room as well as the front of the room, Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody who's strictly trained for screen can play for somebody who's four feet away from them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that mastery of the tool is why scenes like this work so well between them. Yeah. Well, that that's in creative arts. I mean, that is the mark of, of someone who's really mastered the trade. It's the same with musicians. You play to the back of the hall or the people right in front of you. And it's something that you have to learn as a musician to, to play in a way that you're playing to the back of the concert hall with the resonance and the sound. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, one of my favorite moments between them uh, while they're talking is how, Quark is making fun of Odo, uh, uh, trying to convince him to go into the holodeck, and he says, you can mm-hmm. intermingle. He sh- he's holding a glass of something. It's like Romulan ale or something because it's blue, and the way he swishes that glass around is just so delicious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when he comes in, too, and, and, and Quark has the, the two girls on his arms, <laughs> and Odo is like, I can't believe how you're reacting to this. They're all winning. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, I don't know the, the delivery, of the line. It is it, you know, just so natural and so so casual. Well, and I love Odo's line in here. I'm going to have to ask you all to please refrain from using your imaginations. 
how, how exactly does one do that? <laughs> yeah. I've had teachers like that before. <laughs> yeah. I just love that Quark is such a hedonist that uh, he actually gets distracted from profit. Yeah. Like, maybe, yeah. you know, like that's well, that's pretty amazing for a Ferengi. I mean, how true. do you feel about this? Because we all know what Umox is supposed to be equivalent to in Star Trek, and we've just got this long shot of of these girls just rubbing down Quark's ears and and then Quark's facial <laughs> expressions the whole time. It's hilarious. Yeah. I, you know, it, it almost feels like uh, when uh, the Battlestar Galactica reboot figured out that mm-hmm. they could get away with frack as much yeah. as they wanted to. And like all of a sudden they were like, at least once every, you know, three lines, we have to use this word. Don't say it all. And, it, yeah. you know, I, I think that they, <laughs> they... Well, that's what made it they, so popular, right? Because frack wasn't new. Frack was in the original Battlestar Galactica as well. But yeah. they, they brought it out here and, and they really, really made it. A curse word that was okay for TV, right? And and now it comes on. Are you doing this show, by the way, John, with Colin and and Mike and Drew? I think commentary frack stars that they have started. Have you <laughs> no, done that I show yet? I yeah. haven't been on that one yet. So no. they've got commentary track stars, commentary trek stars, and commentary frack stars now. Oh that, my goodness! That sounds oh, amazing. Goodness. All right, well, well, let's get into a racy topic since we're kind of headed that way anyway. Let's talk about the fantasy life of Julian Bashir. Going through season one, this was not much of a shock because we've seen him. Like, he can barely stand up straight when Jazzy is around. But <laughs> at this point, though, when we know what he turns into as the series goes on, and when you go back and you rewatch it, it's really kind of funny to see him around Jadzia. What did you think when, before we know who the aliens are, by the way, and you just see this amorous Jadzia Dax coming onto him, knowing how badly he wants her and then how he reacts mm-hmm. once she, he doesn't know yet that it's an alien, is actually making advances toward him. Right. His, you know, it's his big fantasy that she's suddenly wooed and then, you know, all the, you know, it happens, quote unquote, and his first reaction is to start taking scans. And what's wrong with you? <laughs> right. What's wrong with me? What, what What's going on here? Wait, you and, like me? There must be something wrong. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I and, actually, you know, oh no, go, go ahead and finish your thought. Oh no, I, I was just going to say, and it's like hard on the heels of a conversation where she says, oh, you're a great friend. And yeah. he has he has a reaction that I, I think uh. a lot of people can I sympathize with of just sitting back and going, okay, all right, great. Thank you. You know, like maybe that's why he questioned it. But then if he questions it for him to suddenly say, ah, what the heck? I can't figure out what it is. What's wrong right now. Okay. That felt a little odd to me. It felt a little weird. Yeah, I agree with you on that point. I did think it was really refreshing the way that they handled it because it was hot on the heels of that conversation where she had clearly been like, look, I, I really love you as a friend, but this is not in the cards at all. It's not going to happen because I think it would have been really easy for the writers to just let him go with it um, as soon as she started throwing herself at him. But the fact that he had the forethought to stop and, and he knows he, he knows her well enough to know that she wouldn't just turn on a dime like that. So there must be something wrong. I thought it spoke really well to his character 
um, and to who he is and who he eventually becomes. How would Riker right, like, have handled it? <laughs> <laughs> he, he would have blamed the transporter clone. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he would have gone ahead with, with it. They would have had um, had a little bit of fun there. And then when he was questioned about it later, he would have said, no, that was Thomas you were with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, you know, it, their interaction at the at the very beginning when he's still like going back and seeing the early episodes after you see the character development later and you know everything that has come you know, between Jadzia and Worf and the way that Bashir's character matures over time, going back and seeing them interact when he's still trying to um, woo her, it feels, it feels so weird. It feels so odd. And um, I think it speaks to the fact that they weren't a hundred percent sure what they were going to do with that relationship, whether they were going to, have it be, you know, Bruce Willis and, and Sybil Shepard or what, you know, like it, it felt like they almost felt obligated to over time, these two would fall in love. And this is just their early courting phase. And it really, to go back and see it in action makes me thankful that they didn't go down that road Yeah, because what they produced by not feeling obligated to do that was much more special and memorable than anything they could have done with these two characters, oh, especially yeah. with the way they were developing in the beginning. Yeah. Now, yeah, I totally John, agree. using that reference, I now have a good approximation of how old you are. I just want you to know <laughs> that now. Curses, have I given myself away? <laughs> now, um, when I was watching this, and uh, I, if, if my memory serves, it transitions from Odo and um, Quark over to uh, Dr. Bashir and uh, Jazia. Part of me thought, just for a split second, okay, did um, when you see her coming on to Doctor Horndog later, I, I <laughs> part of me wondered, okay, did did Quark, you know, because he's been known to kind of play matchmaker at times, so mm-hmm. did did he slip her, uh, you know, a Mickey or whatever? And, <laughs> but um, I I I thought it. The part that kind of threw me off on this episode with regards to what happened to Dr. Bashir and his imagination is I thought it was a little, I don't know if off is the right right term, but the way the real, uh, the real Dax responded to it. Like I thought, I would have thought she would have been a little more upset than what she came off as. I I think she would be if she were just... How old is Jadzia supposed to be? I'm trying to remember. I think she's supposed to be like 28, something like that. Um, If she were just a young woman in her late 20s, I think she probably would be. I think that's where they played up the fact that she's actually this trill who has all these lifetimes of experience, and that allows her to sort of temper her reaction to something like that. Uh, So it actually, I think, was written well to, to... take what they had created of this character and actually utilize that. Well, she, she actually says at one point, uh, don't worry, Julian. I, I'm probably paraphrasing, but don't worry, Julian. I was a young man once. Right. Oh, that's yeah. right. And yeah. yeah. To sort of contextualize it that way. Yeah. 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 At, and, um, 
but then it, it continued beyond that. And it's almost, you know, if you're going to pick on a flaw I, with that, the way that was handled is I think that when she called out how um, submissive that Jadzia was, I would think that, you know, I thought it was cute the way that, you know, the imaginary Jadzia, you know, threw some of Julian's uh, misgivings about her at the real Jadzia. But it would have been interesting to see that imaginary character adapt her tactics to be more reflective of the real Jadzia Mm -hmm. um, so that she wasn't this sort of like submissive, want to sleep with him sort of mentality so much as... You know, adapting and saying, okay, well, what is it about the real Jedzia that you do want? You know, th- this is your fantasy, but let me adapt your fantasy to what you would expect to actually happen. But, you know, at the same time, you only have, you know, an hour with commercial breaks. So, well, they, they could have recovered about 10 minutes if they had cut down the gazing at the view screen <laughs> at the rift yeah. part where we got every character's. <laughs> extended reaction to what was happening on the screen there john <laughs> that, that's an excellent point chris uh the the uh the music cues weren't at least 10 weren't minutes right there <laughs> yeah i think that they, i think that um you know that they they just hit like a, a note on the synthesizer and then they just went into the editing booth and they were just like okay yeah. just keep it stretching for a little bit here so Megan, looks like you wanted to say something about Jadzia there yeah i thought john t- uh, touched on a really a couple of really great topics with that first i think the scene where jedzia is kind of forgiving julian for his fantasies i thought it was so well written for her as the trill character because you do see her admit that yeah okay i understand it's a fantasy i like how she says i feel like we're kind of invading your privacy because it's a fantasy and those are supposed to be private and they're private for a reason but you so you see the wisdom of the of Dax, but then she keeps going and becomes more Jadzia and gets upset about the content of his Mm -hmm. fantasy. But when she complains about her being submissive, I thought that, I thought that was a little strange because to me, I didn't see her as being submissive. She was being sexually aggressive. That's not necessarily being submissive to me. So to me, what Julian likes about Jadzia is that she's a strong, confident woman who speaks her mind. Hmm. And he wants a strong, confident woman that's going to be constantly attracted to him and just wants to be with him at all times. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a little bit of a mistake in the writing. Well, Hmm. I I don't think that Julian wants did Jadzia be submissive yeah, like I said, don't in the either. first place? But it could be that those aliens are, they don't know how to interpret the imagination of people. And so they're pulling out this one little thing and then behaving in that very, very one-dimensional way. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're seeing. But but yeah, I never took it either as that Julian's fantasy is that Jadzia would just be submissive to him, yeah. To me, it looks like he wants a woman who's assertive and mm. assertive about being intimate with him. That's what he's looking for, not a submissive woman. At least that was my takeaway from that. <laughs> Almost like he's um, he's like projecting his libido yes. onto her. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I could see, yeah, I could see that. Okay. That would be a good uh, foreshadowing of what's yet to come. So mm-hmm. with, yeah. with his relationship. Um, later on in this series, that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go on to one last point here that we have to talk about, 
which is the expanded baseball mythology. Now, Mike from commentary Trek Stars, and as I mentioned earlier, Frack Stars, is a huge baseball fan, and he told me that we have to talk about this. But of course, I wanted to talk about it anyway, because Deep Space Nine fans are very familiar with Cisco's baseball and its importance in the story as we go along, especially the interplay between Cisco and Dukat and what the baseball symbolizes there as well. I think a lot of people forget where the baseball came from, which is that it was given to him by Buck Bokai in this episode, because this episode is often laughed off as being the Rumpelstiltskin episode. But this is where he gets the baseball, which I think is really cool. The other thing we find out here is that baseball dies out. And apparently it died out in 2042. And Buck mentions that in the final World Series in 2042, there were only 300 fans in the stadium. And Vine, I'm going to kick this over to you because you told us on the other side of the room. The other side of the room. That you're a huge baseball fan and you're kind of sad that baseball dies out eventually, according to Star Trek. Yeah, I hope that's not true. I, um, I've always enjoyed baseball growing up. My dad's the one that kind of plugged me into it. And um, I, I played it, but more or less I enjoyed watching it with my dad. I just took him to a Mariners game a couple of weeks ago. So um, that's the one part about this. And I'll be honest, out of all the other times, I've watched this episode maybe about six or seven times. And this is the first time I actually picked up on the line that baseball kind of fell out of popularity and died. I never picked that up the other six times. I'm like, what? Oh, that kind of sucks. I don't like that. But um, I, I do like yeah, the other part about it. Um, this baseball player, the um, Bukai that that uh, Cisco likes, his what was he a pitcher? I can't remember what his position he was, was. A shortstop, but okay. Bukai. Yeah, yeah his his physique is kind of that of uh, I don't know if you know who John Cruck is you know mm-hmm. I I found him not not so pro baseball looking in terms of right. who, who they yeah. pick for the actor yeah. on this, but I, yeah. I liked his character. He was. Um, uh, he's the kind of person that you kind of grow to like. So um, yeah. I like that they brought baseball into this. I thought that was not just to bring Cisco into the storyline, but yeah. um, but it is interesting. I never noticed until you just said it that this is when the baseball uh, was introduced. I thought yeah. Cisco had brought that on board. So, Well, the yeah, you would think he might, right? Because we see him using baseball as an analogy for the prophets and emissary, right? So you would think maybe he had it. But this particular baseball that he has on his desk comes from this episode. What's interesting to me with baseball is that, so I'm not really a baseball fan. I, I'm a football fan and specifically college football. And baseball for me is a sport that it's fun to go to the stadium and watch a game. And in fact, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama originally. And I remember going to watch the Barons play when Michael Jordan decided he wanted to play baseball. And he got sent to Birmingham and he was on our team. And we would go out to uh, the Met and watch him play. And I also like playing baseball. Like if I'm playing the game in real life, like when I was a kid or today, if I'm playing on PlayStation, it's a fun game to play, but like to watch it on television is extremely boring to me. 
and it's just not an interesting game. And I think that it's a commentary on. It's it's interesting if you if you have an emotional stake in one of the teams playing, which is the case for you know any sport, but it's a slow sport, and I think it's a commentary here on society, even in the '90s where attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And I think it's actually the reason that football and NASCAR are so popular today is that they're very action-packed sports as opposed to baseball, which is America's pastime, but is a slow sport to watch. And I think they're mentioning that. And also an interesting point is this episode uh, aired May 16th of 1993. And you remember that the 90s were a time where baseball was having a lot of problems. And then it was 90, was it 96 or was it, was it 94? Was it 96 when we got the big baseball strike where they actually canceled part of the season? There was no World Series. And, and yeah, and they let Ripken cross the picket line so he could keep his that's uh, right. record yeah. intact. And I, I had lots of friends who were diehard baseball fans at that time who got fed up with it. And they said, I'm done. I'm done with baseball. And I think it really took Major League Baseball many, many years to get people to come back. And they really hurt themselves with that strike. And like I said, I'm not a, not really a baseball fan, so I would need someone else like Vaughn here to, to speak to how much it has recovered, whether it has recovered fully from those years or not. But I think they really hurt themselves at a time when people were already maybe losing interest in the sport. And I think that Star Trek is just commenting on that. Well, I, I don't think baseball is going anywhere, certainly not by 2042. I mean, mm-hmm. the... I mean, I've done events at work. I'm an event planner and I've done events with the guys who do the Sabre metrics and they just filled the room. It was like Mm -hmm. standing room only. And we're talking like a 300 seat room. So I I think baseball really has recovered. Well, 300 is perfect. That's how many people were at the 2042 World Series, Megan. We had the the final (laughs) World Series at my job. Yeah, it was great. 301 in my version. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, maybe I think it must have been a sign of the times because I mean, so many of my friends are huge baseball fans. I've got a soft spot in my heart for baseball. I played softball when I was younger. It was my sport. Um, so I, I think 2042 um, was a pessimistic guess for if, if yeah. baseball ever dies. I, I don't think it's going to die anytime soon. I don't think it's going to die either. But yeah, um, yeah but not by had, 2042. Yeah. Yeah. If they were making the episode today, they might have uh, had it be found a way to make it hockey. Because I think I could see hockey going yeah. away. Yeah, actually, I I agree yeah. with you there. I think hockey's really struggling, at least in How, the states. But even though they mention this here in this episode on DS Nine, remember that in DS Nine they do play up the fact that baseball is coming back, and there are these teams, you know, in like Pike City and places like that. In fact, baseball is what brings Cisco and Cassidy together because their date wasn't going very well until they both realized that they both like baseball. So baseball is responsible. Bajorans should really love baseball because baseball is responsible for the birth of the emissary's child. That's a great point. (laughs) (laughs) It'll become the Bajoran pastime. (laughs) The story of Buck Bokai here is interesting too, that they wanted to have a baseball character on here and they were making props. There's a junior illustrator, Ricardo Delgado 
on the show and he was making props for Cisco's desk and he made these baseball cards and they're actually shown on Cisco's desk from time to times, even before this episode. And one of the cards is Buck Bokai. And he, um, Delgado, is a fan of Buckaroo Banzai, the movie Buckaroo Banzai, and that's where the name comes from, Buck Bokai. And uh, he retouched the cards and I think it was Mike Pillar who wanted, I think it was Mike Pillar who wanted to have the uh, the baseball player be the character that was mentioned in The Big Goodbye. And then they wanted to have an Asian uh, descent for the character. And then they got uh, photos of Greg Gian, who is a model creator, who's actually on the Starships panel, Ships of the Line panel at San Diego Comic-Con this past week as well. And he had photos of himself in a baseball jersey. And that became the basis for the baseball card that they made for Cisco's desk. And so then when they got to this episode and they're going to actually make a real live Buck Bokai come on the station, that's where we get the the Asian um, bloodline for, you know, descent for the character as well. It's kind of an interesting story that how that all comes together, though. Cool. Not completely out of the blue just for this one episode. All right. Well, I think we've run through. It's We've talked an hour about if wishes were horses. Can you believe that? <laughs> we, we had more content for this episode than the writers had for this episode because the... Um, <laughs> I, I already the mentioned the view screen fan. gazes, which it... it uh, oh, there's so many times this episode where it just feels completely like they're stalling for time. Like, we've got to get 45 minutes out of this somehow. <laughs> and they Bring even in the inserted... Emu. Yeah, that's right. Let's have more emu time. Why didn't the emus ever get to the bridge? Come on. <laughs> that could have been you, cool. You know. the, the, the turbo lift comes up and there are two emus <laughs> on the turbo lift right in the yeah. office. They're running Start around, playing. pecking the... But see, you can't get them to do anything. You have to drag them around. Oh, that's a good point. Because you, you could speed up the film and have it uh, have it be a Benny Hill skit. Oh, that would be <laughs> awesome. Chasing emus all through the station. <laughs> Boom. Three That'd minutes of screen fantastic. time right there. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of last point here on the, the filler, though, the scene where Cisco pops up behind Jake on the sofa in their quarters, that was mm-hmm. added at the last minute because they were running short they needed some material for the episode. Oh, really? Yeah. That was a good oh, I scene. Yeah. Because I, I, I actually specifically, um, th- like, what 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 really jumps out about that moment is that Jake isn't, like, actually afraid of mm-hmm. Cisco. You know, he's like, oh, he'd kill me. But, like, when Cisco manifests in his imagination, it's he loves his dad so much, he's terrified of disappointing him. Mm-hmm. And Cisco doesn't like yell at him or or anything like that. He's just like, "Oh, come on, is that really what happened?" It's like, <laughs> no. "Okay, Dad, I'll do." Do you think my your homework. dad would really kill you? <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I don't think so. But it's also the scene is intentionally vague, and it's actually something that I think at least I never really picked up on this. Most of the times I watch the episode, but they shot it in a way where Cisco appears to suddenly pop into the scene from behind Jake. And it was actually done to keep it vague, like, is that really Cisco, or is that one of the aliens pretending to be Cisco as well? Hmm. Have you have you ever really thought about that, or did you always just take it as well, that's just Cisco coming into his quarters? Uh no, I, I always 
presumed that it was uh, like it, it was an extension of the manifestations. Okay, interesting. That, yeah, that it was you know Jake's imagination uh-huh. of how exactly how his father would react mm-hmm. if he didn't do his homework. Yeah. So it's uh, but it was supposed to be left vague. Like, is it really Cisco or is it not Cisco? And I, th- I think the intention is that it's not primarily because Avery Brooks wanted to play the scene like standing up over his son like I'm the father figure but they they didn't want it to be played that way because that really would make it seem like it's definitely really Cisco. Yeah, yeah. I mean if that was their intention I don't think it really came across that way. It really mm-hmm. seemed like it almost seemed like Jake was really comfortable with the fact that he was having a conversation with his imagination. Like it really mm-hmm. seemed like Jake knew it wasn't really Cisco. Mhm. He wanted to he wanted to bring that back later on in the series when he tells about his girlfriends, all the times he tells his dad about his girlfriends, right? Yeah, that would have been nice, right? To have some practice. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's go into final thoughts on this and our ratings. So, John, what are your final thoughts on if wishes were horses and what's your rating? Uh, fun episode, uh, you know, especially if you're a fan of the show. You know, it, it's fun to go back. The little tidbit about that's where the baseball comes from. That's fun. You know, that, that makes it a fun episode retconning it so that it works in some way, uh, with past stories, whether they be on the silver screen or, or past, uh, series, you know, that I think that's a lot of fun. So, uh, I'm going to have to give it, um, I'm going to say, uh, 27 Kindles out of 30. All right. Excellent. Oh, that reminds me. Did you also wonder when Miles is reading the story to Molly if that pad is just dedicated to Rumpelstiltskin? Like, were there any other stories on that pad or is that the Rumpelstiltskin pad? Because you know how limited pads are in Star Trek. You need a whole stack of them. There's probably like a row of pads in Molly's room with all the fairy tales on them. My my first thought was Kindle. It really was. It was just, <laughs> hey, look, there's their library. Because, I mean... You know, maybe it's maybe it's the benefit of time. Maybe back then I'd have been like, oh, wow, they have a story on a small computer screen. But like, you know, now I'm like they must have thousands of stories on that <laughs> intergalactic iTunes. They just download the app. <laughs> All right. Well, Vaughn, how about you? This episode, I think somebody else already mentioned this already, but it's a good um, like my wife has never watched Deep Space Nine, and this is one I think she could sit through and not be too bored by the geekiness of it. But um, for me, I like it just because it touches on a lot of topics that are fun, the the imaginative thinking and the power of your imagination. I always like Quark and Odo, so anytime Quark's on the screen, that that's always fun for me. And the the aspect of baseball they brought into it, so... Uh, for because of all those, I would uh, have to rate it four out of five metaphoric fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. How about you, Megan? Um, well, I think this episode had potential to be a lot worse than it was. I think. Uh, yeah. I think ultimately they did a, an actually a good job with uh, the concept that they came up with, even if they were clearly stretching for time. Uh, so I will give it six out of 10 emus on the promenade. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, uh, that's a great point, Megan. This episode definitely had the potential to be worse. 
And I think a lot of fans, as I keep saying, remember it that way. Like almost like this is in the same category with Move Along Home. But Mm. this episode for me really is fun. It's just a fun episode. And I think it's a much better episode than Move Along Home. I think it's much better than most people give it credit for. And I surprisingly watch it. I mean, not like once a month or anything, but I watch it far more often than one might think. (laughs) So I kind of, I do enjoy this one. So I'm going to give this episode eight Daedalus class starship models. Ooh, nice. Because I love how DS9 throws in references to 23rd century technologies and ships and events and foods and everything that, that people overlook. And Cisco has this starship model sitting in his office, starting from progress all the way on through, you see it over and over through the series. It's a weird starship design though, isn't it? It's got a big ball. Yeah. Yeah. Front. <laughs> yeah. It's a little odd, <laughs> but it's pretty cool. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, guys. Before we go, Vaughn, tell people where they can find you if they want to find out what's going on in the world of Vonster. I'm hanging out and tweeting far too much on Twitter, and you can find me at, at Vonster. And my website is just my name, vonglitchka.com. Excellent. Very good. And John, how about you? Uh, you can find me causing all sorts of trouble on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E, and also on a weekly podcast called uh, Words with Nerds that I co-host with my buddy Craig. Excellent. Very good. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us today, guys. Thank thanks you. for having me. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me on. It was really fun to to do the show. And as a, <laughs> I think I made it through my first time co-hosting pretty well. I think you did a great job. You did. All right. so thank you for doing news with me today. And uh, thanks to John and Vaughn. I was joking that they're going to have a new podcast on the network, the John and Vaughn Show. So we'll see when that's going to launch. But I'm glad they could join us today as well. But if Wishes for Horses isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. <laughs> Oh, I'm just going to say this up front. I don't know if it's Koenig or Koenig. I've heard both. I'm going to mm-hmm. go with Koenig, but if I'm wrong, just pretend I said Koenig the whole time. And I'll go with Koenig. All right. And then, so our bases and are then, covered. So we'll both... Okay. Yes. Right. One of us will be right. Earl Grey. They're like, we're supposed to be decommissioned. And Kirk's like, second star to the right. <laughs> and then, like, what happens after that moment? They're like... They just start like... Five minutes later, it's like, well... <laughs> I guess we do guess have we to go turn back. around. Yeah. <laughs> To the journey! To the journey is community, and that's what you find with Star Trek, and that's why we do what we do, and that's why we love it when you guys write us, find us on Twitter, and that's why we're all friends on Trek.fm, is because we have this sense of community, and that's what it brings. It's not just about a show, it's about each other. Warp 5. Archer's way is the right way. He -hmm. brings the light. She -hmm. walks into the light to talk to Archer because then she is enlightened because he is an enlightened man. Mm -hmm. She walks back into the darkness and retreats back into her world to pick up the slates and go teach the Mm -hmm. kids about the humans and the Skagarans and all that kind of stuff. Commentary, Trek stars. I think it would be fun in order for in order to prove my point would be like to us have us play a game of Monopoly and also two players entirely determined by randomness. Two fictional players would be Mike, Max, Blue, and Green. Continuing mission. 
when we made the audio drama, it was a fairly straightforward transition. Let's call this ship the Excelsior. Let's make it the fourth one to bear the name. Let's put it in the Delta Quadrant. But uh, now that we're there, um, I'm really happy with a lot of those things. Melodic Treks. Second marriage took place in August the 6th, 1963, to Camille J. Williams, a Las Vegas dancer, and they had two children. And yes, I know, he divorced and married in the same year. I ain't gonna go anywhere near that. You draw your own conclusions. Literary Treks. I think I posited the idea that Lal was kidnapped, and Margaret just said in her Margaret E. way, she just said, Moriarty. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can get them everywhere you get your podcasts. We're all over the place. We are the Jeffrey Combs of Star Trek podcasting. He is everywhere. Just search for Trek.fm or the name of the show you want to listen to and you'll find us there. And don't forget to check out the Master Feed, which contains every episode of every show we do. So if you want to sample all these shows, that's a great way to get started. And while you're in iTunes, don't forget to leave us a review of The Ready Room or any of these other shows. You can also do that in Stitcher, and you'll get your name in the drawing for some great Star Trek prizes as part of our reviews promotion. Now, the promotion was supposed to end here at the end of July, but we've actually decided to extend this a couple of weeks for two reasons. One, a lot of our series-focused shows did not get started promoting it at the same time we did here on The Ready Room. So we want to give those audiences a little extra time to get their reviews in. And also, we have a great new prize for those who review the official podcast of Star Trek Axanar. Alec has contributed some of these amazing embroidered patches that they've done for Axanar. It's a set of three, and we'll be putting an image of that on the page at trek.film slash review. And we want to give people a chance to get in the drawing for that as well. So if you don't listen to the Star Trek Axanar podcast, you need to go do it. We've had some great episodes. Just had David Gerald, who of course wrote The Trouble with Tribbles on with us last week to talk about Klingons. And check out those patches. You're going to want them. So again, the reviews promotion, all you need to do is to leave a review of any of our shows on iTunes and or Stitcher. And then go to trek.film slash review and fill out the form that you find there. Every review you leave, including the master feed, will get you an entry in the drawing. And the prizes include a season of Star Trek on DVD or Blu-ray, some Star Trek novels, also some official starships from Japan, from the Starships collection, and a collection of our alien art badges, original artwork by Tobu Ushi. Again, trek.film slash review has all the details, and we look forward to hearing from you. And a huge thank you to everyone who has been leaving us reviews. We've gotten so many that I'm still trying to get them organized. And so I want to read some of them to you on the show here. I'm going to do that next week because I've just had a crazy week and I don't have them organized for this show. So stay tuned for that. And thank you, everyone who has reviewed us. If you'd like to leave us some feedback on today's show, there are a number of ways you can do that. Just go to trek.fm slash contact. We have a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose the ready room, and that will come to us by email. You can also find us on Twitter. Our username is trekfm, facebook.com slash trekfm. We have a community on G+. We have forums at trek.fm slash forums. You can send us a voicemail through the website as well, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, Megan, you are, as I said at the beginning of the show, an educated geek tell us what that means so educating geeks is a podcast um we the concept of the whole podcast is that 
there is so much out there in geek culture that there's no way that we can all consume it at once. And every single one of us has a friend out there that hasn't seen or done your favorite geek thing. So every week, uh, someone on the podcast is getting an education on the topic. For example, if you've never seen Star Wars, we'll bring you on the show and we'll talk about a Star Wars movie and introduce well, you. Okay, hold on just a second here. Man. Oh, I said the wrong if, thing. No, no, no. We put Star <laughs> Wars sound clips in this show all the time. If someone's never seen Star Wars, do you guys, do you bring them in? Do you make fun of them for a while first no. and then you educate them on it? Or or how does that it's work? Not, it's not very nice <laughs> to make fun of people for being I geeks know. just because they haven't had time to watch Indiana Jones. Um, you know, it's isn't it fun to introduce your friends to a new thing? Like instead Absolutely. of making fun of them, have them over for some pizza and beer and watch The Empire Strikes Back for the first time. So, so that's what we do. Is, Everyone is welcome at Educating That's right. Geeks. That's right. Yeah, it's it, our network is great for Star Trek talk, but if you like video games and all kinds of other movies and TV shows and everything, go listen to Megan's podcast. I, I love the show, especially... I loved your discussion of Spirited Away, the Miyazaki animation, because it's one of my favorite animated films. And also, I'm just diehard Legend of Zelda, and you guys talking about Legend of Zelda was one of my favorite podcasts that I've listened to in a long time. And I, I listen to so many podcasts. And the fact that you guys have Legend of Zelda drinking rules. Yes. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's that's one of the things we always do. If you like if you like to enjoy libations, we come up with a drinking game for every topic. So yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed the Zelda one. We'd been kind of chomping at the bit to do that one for a while. <laughs> and we didn't even get it through it all. So we're going to have a second part of that. So you'll have to stay okay. tuned for it yeah, sometime in 2015. You'll have to have me on for that, actually. Yeah, I, we Legend would love to have you on. Yeah, that would, be, that would be so much fun. All right, I may have to replay some Legend of Zelda though to prep for that. We've all been replaying it, so you, we'd all be in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> so again, to find you guys, you're in iTunes and elsewhere, right? Educating geeks. Yeah, if you search for Educating Geeks on iTunes or Stitcher, um, we're also on SoundCloud, so you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts. Um, we're also at EducatingGeeks.com, um, and we have, we're on Google+, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. We're Educating Geeks across the board, so it's really easy to find us. I wonder if EducatingGeeksAcrossTheBoard.com is taken yet. <laughs> go check that out. I'm going to go look for that right now. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. So feel free to hit me up there. I also have my often neglected website at cbrianjones.com, but I promise I'm going to add some new stuff to it at some point, but you can see what's already there. And then on the network, I do lots of shows. I mentioned some of them today. There's Literary Treks, The Orb, Matterstream, Warp 5, Continuing Mission, Hyper Channel, which is our daily news show, and also the official podcast of Star Trek Axanar, which I co-host with Alec Peters. So go check out all of those shows if you want to find out what else I'm talking about in the world of Star Trek and science and the things related to Star Trek. And before I let you go, I'd also like to remind you about our sponsor, audible.com. Go pick up that book, Q and Law, or anything else that you'd like absolutely free. That's at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. If at the end of the trial, by the way, you decide not to stick with Audible, which I don't know why you wouldn't want to stick with them, 
But if you decide it's not for you, you'll get to keep that book. So there's nothing to lose. But you really are helping us. It's one of the ways that you can support the shows. If you love Trek FM, go try them out. It really does help us. And we really thank Audible for their support of the Ready Room, of all of our shows, and the network. Well, Megan, I'm going to wander off and see if that alien Jadzia Dax is still around. Because I I think she really wants someone to just give her some attention. (laughs) I I think you're right. She seemed desperate for some attention, for (laughs) sure. She did. (laughs) Well, it's time to stick a Gunji Jokda in it because the ready room is done. 